In Numbers chapter 15 tonight, uh, I'll read the entire chapter. I think it's, what, uh, 41 verses. Yep, 41. Hear God's holy word. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering, or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. Then you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hin with a burnt offering or with a sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering for the sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for a peace offering to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half a hin of oil. You shall offer as the drink offering one hin of a half of, uh, of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each ox, for each ram, for each of the male lambs or the goats. According to the number that you prepare, you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are natives shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. If an alien sojourns with you or one who wishes who is among you throughout your generations and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. A perpetual statute throughout your generations, as uh, you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which, uh, where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift it up as an offering to the Lord. Or the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering of the threshing floor, you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give it to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments, which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses, from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, and it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, then all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel and they shall be forgiven for it was an error. They brought their offering and offering by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord in their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven. With the alien who sojourns among them, it will happen to all the people through uh, error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, they shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native also among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But 
The person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. Now, when the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, That man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside of the camp. So all of the congregation brought him outside of the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they shall put on the tassels of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. So you shall remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Let's pray. Almighty God, who is sufficient for the proclamation of your word, I am not. I pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would have mercy on on me, thou my great Jehovah, and the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, by your spirit would be made acceptable to you. The um, content of my sermon would be from your scripture, holy God, and even my manner, Lord, my tone, everything would likewise be under your government, Holy Spirit, such that you would be honored and your people would be edified. Have mercy upon us, Lord. May we look to the sacrifice and none to our own doing. May we be your holy people. You are our holy God. Amen. The general sermon this morning, this evening, excuse me, will be um, obviously sacrifice and offerings is what the the um, sermon title is, it's really lessons lessons taught by the sacrificial system. That's really what it is. And when I say sacrificial system, it's the Old Testament ceremonial system. I'll flush that out in more detail in just a bit. But what I want to do is mention a few things uh, from a couple of chapters prior to chapter 15, and maybe I'll mention chapter 16 that will... Um, they'll help us understand what's going on in chapter 16 with the kind of the institution of the sacrificial system or the extrapolation of the sacrificial system. And um, it's significant. In chapter 11 of Numbers, you have the people of God there grumbling over the manna. They hate the manna, which is typological of Christ, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. And they uh, loathe the manna. They say this, this, this manna from heaven, we loathe it, which is to say they loathe God's provision. And they're lusting or craving for meat. So that's chapter 11, grumbling people. Then when we come to uh, chapter uh, 12, I think in chapter 12 we have Miriam and we have Aaron similarly grumbling and complaining. And this time you have leadership within the visible household of faith. And they, are, um, they derided Moses' choice of wife. She was married, he was married to a Cushite, an Ethiopian woman, and they really craved a leadership, higher leadership roles. So the people of God were grumbling and craving 
that which God did not give them. And then we have Miriam and Aaron grumbling, craving that which God did not give them. Then we come to uh, chapter uh, 13. And the 12 spies are sent out. And 10 of the 12 spies come back and they give what's called an evil report. They've spied out the land. They say the land is filled with milk and honey, but it's also filled with giants. And then the 10 faithless spies counsel the people of God to disobey God. They say, don't go into the promised land. uh, We'll be killed. That's chapter 13. Then when we come to chapter 14, there is a wholesale rebellion of of the people people of God. I just want you to see that. Chapter 11, sin. (laughs) Chapter 12, some more sin. Chapter 13, sin. Chapter 14, so we have sin, 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 sin by all of the people, or pretty much all of the people. And then towards the end of chapter 14, God tells Moses, I'm going to kill the whole lot of them, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses intercedes for the people, Christ-like. He speaks with God face to face, and he pleads that God would save God's sinning people. And you remember the grounds upon which he pleads. He doesn't say, Oh, God, please, uh, please save them because there's a little good left in them. Actually, there's, there's not a little good left in them. He doesn't plead based on Israel's goodness because they don't have any. What does he plead forgiveness? What's, what's the ground? On God's goodness, on God's mercy, on God's grace. That's going to get us at the whole sacrificial system. God, please save them. They're wicked sinners Don't save them based on their good works because they don't have any good works. They have nothing but bad works. Save them because you are a good God. Be gracious to them because you're a gracious God. That's what he pleads. He pleads grace. He pleads mercy. And God answers, you remember, it's kind of a yes and a no answer. When he answers, he says, yes, um, I will save some and I'll extend mercy to some, namely the children of um, the uh, military-age people, I'm going to preserve them in the, in the wilderness and I'm going to bring them into the promised land. So mercy, I will save these people. And then God says to the others, uh, it won't be mercy that I extend to them, it will be justice. And they're going to die for their sin. So God says, yes, I will. And then no, I will not. And so some get mercy and some get justice. Beloved, to use the language of the apostle uh, uh, Paul, God has not done any wrong. Uh, God has, um, the Bible says, uh, both in Malachi chapter 1, which Paul picks up in Romans, Jacob I loved, Esau I have what? Hated. And has God done any wrong? No. Uh, uh, um, Jacob is a scallywag, and uh, uh, Esau is a scallywag. And on one scallywag he has mercy, and on the other scallywag he has justice. And no one can talk back to God. That, that, that's what's going on. Sin, 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 sin. I will extend mercy. I will extend justice. The Bible puts it this way in the book of Romans, that God has vessels of mercy that glorify his mercy, and God has vessels of justice that that glorify his uh, holy wrath. And that's God's business. And that's what God tells Moses. He says, go tell the people. So that's chapter 14. And that brings us to chapter 15, which is how God will extend the forgiveness. That's what the sacrificial system is all about. God says, yes, I will forgive. Yes, I will pass over. Yes, I will give mercy. Chapter 15, with the extrapolation of the sacrificial system, is how God will extend that mercy. 
And I'm just going to say this because this is significant. When we go from this, this is a mercy passage. It's actually a satisfaction of justice passage, which is mercy to us. The animal dies, we, we, we live. Justice is satisfied by the cross. Mercy is extended by the cross. This is God's answer, yes. Chapter 16, do you know what chapter 16 is all about? You would think after you got, God says, yes, I will save some. Here's how I'm going to save through the sacrificial system, typological of Jesus. You think the people would fall on their faces and adore God and fight against sin. What's the very next chapter all about? Rebellion. They bust out in another full-scale rebellion. So this is actually sin against grace, sin against mercy, which is an aggravation of, of, of sin. And I would argue it's a magnification of mercy. Um, it reflects, redounds to the glory uh, of our God. So all that to say this. You remember we asked from chapter 13, why, in chapter 14, excuse me, why did the people of God rebel against God? What caused them to rebel against God? And I think the answer we gave was the faithless, the evil report. So we just blamed it on the 10 spies, which to some extent they're greatly culpable. They dispirited the, the, the remainder of their brothers and they excited them to defect. There was a song when I was in college, maybe high school, it was the Eagles, something about a woman. She can't take you anywhere you don't already want to go. I don't think it's a bad song. It's just the notion of the guy is going to go where the girl wants him to go anyways, and she can't take you where you don't want to go. Along those lines, these 10 spies, I think there was only partial answer that their failure these 10 spies did excite the remaining sin in the people of God, but that's not the real reason they rose up in rebellion. The ultimate reason is given to us in Hebrews 3 and 4. They didn't have faith. They didn't have faith. They defected so easily because they were already defect. They had no faith. They couldn't walk by faith because they didn't have any faith. They were walking by sight because that's all they had was flesh. So the only thing they could see was there are giants in the land and we're going to die. So yes, the evil report causes them uh, to stumble, but it's their own evil heart of unbelief. Now, let me ask you a question. We have just kind of gone through a litany of just sins upon sins. What should, according to strict justice, if we were just to say the God of the Bible, according to strict justice, what do these people deserve before God? Grumbling, complaining, Denying God, rebelling against God. All, what does it all deserve? What do the sins deserve? Death, it deserves death. And then after the extension of mercy in chapter 15, they continue to sin. What does that deserve? So according to strict justice, God would be right to do exactly what he said to Moses in the last chapter. I'm going to get rid of the whole lot of them. They're going to get justice. So when we come here, this is an extension of mercy to people that do not deserve mercy. That's what mercy is all about. If you deserve something, it's not mercy anymore. It's recompense. It's due you. Mercy is given to, to the, to the uh, moral entity that doesn't deserve it. <laughs> we have demerited it. That's why the mercy is mercy. We're guilty. When you give the guilty something that they don't deserve, you take away the death, you give the life, that's mercy. When someone deserves something and you give it to them, this is legalism, that's pay, that's recompense, that's not this. 
Every last one of them have demerited, demerited, demerited. So there's no cleaning ourselves up before God because it's impossible. But, but our God is both a just God and he is at the same time a, um, a merciful God. And that's what the sacrificial system will show us. It will show us, at least typological, typologically, it will show us how God means to extend uh, mercy. So God has heard the request for, for forgiveness of sins. He said that he will pardon for sins. Chapter 15, again, not to be redundant, uh, to make the point too uh, f- uh, fine. Chapter 15 is how God will forgive sins. That's important. This is what we might call, this is kind of a big big view sermon. Uh, some of the the, the hen, the ephah, we'll save the, the details for later. This is just a big idea sermon. What's the, what does the sacrificial system really, uh, what is it all about? The sacrificial system is spelled out in detail in the book of Leviticus, excuse me. Chapter 1 through 7 deal with the sac- sacrifices. And then from 8 on deal with the sacrificers, the priest. So chapter, uh, the book of Leviticus, excuse me, is on the ceremonial uh, uh, law. The book of Hebrews explains the book of Leviticus. This is reckoning back, uh, hearkening back to the book of Leviticus. But we're going to look at um, the sacrificial system is what we would call the means of uh, pardon. And um, this is... um, this is how, in the Old Testament, you will have... Um, we, we read it. Uh, chapter, George uh, led us in our secondary standard. Chapter 7, paragraph 5, we talked about the covenant of uh, grace, which is, the, law, which is the, uh, the gospel, in the Old Testament. The next uh, paragraph after that is the gospel in the New Testament. The counterpart to what we read was this, in uh, chapter 8 of our confession, paragraph 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, now listen to this, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifice, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday t- in this, for, uh, the same and forevermore. What that means is this, is that under the old ceremonial system, when there was the offering of a bull, of a lamb, of a goat, even the, even the, um, the tabernacle structure, the temple structure, even the furniture within the tabernacle, uh, the, the room, the Holy of Holies, the ark, the mercy seat, the law being inside of the mercy seat, the blood covering the law, the broken law, the day of atonement, the high priest, kapur, kapur means the covering, our sins being covered. All of that is how Christ is offered to the Old Testament people of God before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at chapter 15 in a big bird's eye view, particularly in view of the um, the animal sacrifices with the shedding of blood, particularly those, but even the others depict certain things about the redemptive benefits of Christ. All of this is how the Old Testament saints knew Jesus Christ savingly. 
The Bible says about Abraham that he knew the gospel. Galatians 3, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham knew the gospel and he was saved. Moses knew Christ. Tony talked about it in Sunday school, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. How did he know Christ? He had the, he had the sacrificial system. David knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm chapter 16. How did David, Psalm 110, how did David know Christ? He had the sacrificial system. So by faith, our religious forefathers, the ones with faith, they knew that behind the bulls and in the, in the, in all of the blood and the priesthood and all of this, that it was pointing forward to the promised Messiah. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 13. The Christ who was within the Old Testament prophets was pointing forward to the sufferings and the glories of Jesus Christ to come through the sacrificial system. That's how they knew. And so that's when we are looking at these sacrifices, how God extends the mercy, it will be through the means of this sacrificial um, system. So it's typological. And um, now... When we talk about the sacrificial system or the ceremonial system, even with the priesthood, this is a, I don't want to enter into kind of polemical why I'm not a dispensationalist anymore, but the, the, um, the old ceremonial system was imperfect. It was meant to pass away. There was never meant to be a perpetual third temple built in Palestine with reinstituting the animal sacrifices. That's not going to happen, by the way. Um, Jesus says on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. That is not going to happen. Jesus is not getting off the throne in glory, coming back to sit in a stone throne. That is not going to happen. Read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews exegetes Leviticus. That is done. So he doesn't go backwards. When the umbilical cord is gone, the mother doesn't use it again. And so that was the, the church in its infancy, pointing forward to the church in its, its maturity. But all that to say this, even here, we know that the sacrificial system is temporary and it's going to be replaced when Christ comes. How do I know that? In um, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land, essentially when you enter the land, I want you to practice using the sacrificial system. What's the land that they're entering? What do we call that? The promised land. The promised land was typological. This is Hebrews chapter 11. There was real dirt. They went to a real place. But the real physical place was never the place. It was, it was only a type. It was only a shadow. The patriarchs knew that the land was not it. They knew it was beyond the land. This is what I quote all the time. This is John Bunyan's Celestial City. Read the book of Hebrews 11. The patriarchs knew it wasn't the dirt. They were going home to glory. And so... God's people are told, when you sin in the promised land. Beloved, let me ask you a question. Will we sin when we get to the true promised land? No, there's no sin. You see that. So even by the time or the use of the sacrificial system, the people of God are always being called further and further to look out to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first time and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the second time. So... I take those promises. I know my post-millennial brothers differ with me, but there'll be no more killing, no more, no, uh, they'll beat their spears into plowshares. That's the final estate. That's the final true promised land. And so these are that we're looking at God's required means for forgiveness. Um, if I were to say this to a person, 
if the person were to ask me, does God, the God of the Bible, forgive sins? What's your answer to that? Does the God of the Bible forgive sins? Yes. How does God, the God of the Bible, forgive sins? And we would answer through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's back up. If a person says, well, I don't want to receive the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to appease the justice of God for my sins some other way. Will God forgive the sins of a person some other way, apart from the means? If you were to say, I'm not using the bull, I'm not using the scapegoat, I'm not using the Passover lamb, I will appease God's justice some other way. I won't use the appointed means. What would your status be? You'd be under the wrath of God. You would be subject to the wrath of God for for your sins. You'd still be in your sins. Now, would that be God's fault that he's not extended mercy to you? No, it would be your fault. You've turned your back on the way that God extends mercy. So this gets us to where Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Christianity, sometimes non-Bible-believing Christians say, well, your God is just a wrathful God. There's no love, there's no mercy. What are you talking about? The whole Bible from Genesis 3, 1 through 8 following is a book of redemptive mercy and grace. Because if it was all justice, what would happen after Genesis 3, 1 through 8? You would close the book and we'd all go to, to perdition. The whole book is the extension of forgiveness. But... It's through God's appointed sacrifice. That's the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in creation. God is sovereign in redemption. Sovereign, sovereign. If you say, I'm going to sneak in through Buddha or Sai Baba or any of these other, you're not sneaking in any way. God has made provision. But it's through the required sacrifice. And, And the difficulty for us as Bible believers It's through the exclusive sacrifice. God is the one that sets the parameters. So God does forgive, but he only forgives through his appointed means. I hope that makes sense. That's what we're being taught here um, this morning. The Bible says this in John chapter 3. Jesus says this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That would be the equivalent of a person who says, I don't believe in the Passover lamb. I won't kill it, and I won't apply the blood on the door. Then you will pay the justice of God. God does provide salvation, but in his exclusive means. Uh, I think it's Peter in Acts 4 says this, There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given whereby we must be saved. And again, just looking at the theme of salvation by sacrifice, God, I think it's in 1 through 21, uh, God inspires uh, Moses to write in 1 through 21, some of the elements regarding the sacrificial system. Let's just camp out on the animal sacrifices and leave the Some of the other sacrifices, particularly the wine, when you pour wine over certain offerings, Thanksgiving and peace offerings, and it indicates joy, 
maybe some of these things we can touch on, but particularly the the animal offerings, I want to I want to touch on. Somehow, when God says, "I will forgive," I will forgive through the sacrificial system and and looking at the animal. Somehow, God's justice for our sin, which deserves death, will be appeased by the sacrifice. That is foundational to the cross. We believe in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement through substitutionary penal atonement. That's what the cross is all about. Not everyone believes that. That somehow that sacrifice will stand as a substitute atonement in the place of the ones that it represents. In other words, remember the litany of sins, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, all of these rebels complaining, and we said rightly, Every sin deserves death. And God says, my justice will be satisfied and I will extend mercy. But the justice won't be satisfied by you, sinner. It will be satisfied by the animal oblation or sacrifice. The animal sacrifice will get what we deserve, death, and we will get what we don't deserve, which is life, that's mercy. So the sacrificial system teaches the notion of substitution. Um, Sometimes people think, well, uh, I have demerited, I will pay. I have merited, I will reward. That's strict Pelagianism. That would be another day. After Adam's fall, no one keeps the law of God perfectly. No one. Not one person. And the law of God requires that we love God without missing a beat, that we love human beings without missing a beat. We can never not love human beings ever. If there's ever one untoward thought uh, towards a human being, we failed. And James says, if you break one law, you broke the whole thing. You're a sinner. You're undone. And so the, the extension of, of salvation, of forgiveness, is via that substitute. The substitute will do what we cannot do, die and take the sins and we get extended uh, the mercy. So I want to back up a little bit. When God says, I will extend um, forgiveness of sins through these animal sacrifices, I want us to see something that I think we we fall into, which is an error. The penalty for law-breaking is not law-keeping. God does not say to the sinners, listen, You've been busy breaking my sins all along, but if you go ahead and promise to do much, much, much better, I will account your obedience to the law as satisfaction of breaking the law. That's not true, beloved. The law does not save. This is Romans chapter 3. The law does not save. God is telling us somehow that sacrifice will stand in the place of our law keeping. When someone says, well, I'm going to keep the law now that I broke the law and I'll appease God for my law breaking, you're required to keep the law. You're required. There's no merit in it. You're required to do it. Doing your duty doesn't pay for when you do, you break your duty. If we were to apply this to everyday life, Olive Road outside is what? I don't know what it is, residential area, 40 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour, So we are required to drive the speed limit on that road. If you drive 90 miles an hour on that speed uh, limit and you get pulled over by a state, there's a state trooper that rolls around here. 
prowls around. If he pulls you over, you can't say to him, but I drive 45 miles an hour every other day. He's going to say, you're required to drive 45 miles. Keeping the speed limit doesn't pay for when you break the speed limit. The law does not save. The sacrifice, the substitute, stands in the place of our law failure. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I know there's a guy that says the the law is the gospel. He is flamingly wrong. He is flamingly wrong. The law is not the gospel. The Beatitudes are not the gospel. John 3.16 is the gospel. Jesus' sacrifice stands in place of our law-breaking. That's what the sacrificial system teaches us. Now, that's not to say that we despise the law, but we don't look to the law to be saved. I'm going to just read a couple. This is important because this is what the sacrificial system is teaching. Old Testament has law and gospel. New Testament has law and gospel. And we can't compound the two. 8.1, Romans 8.1, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and his offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The law does not save. The sacrifice stands in the place of their law-breaking. Galatians 2. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died what? Needlessly. The sacrificial system teaches us that we our sins have been forgiven not by our law appeasement, but by the sacrifice's law appeasement. One more. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John Bunyan, the, the second most, I think the most popular book on the planet is the Bible. And the second most popular book, I believe that this is true, is Pilgrim's Progress, which was written by John Bunyan, was an English nonconformist, English Baptist. And he writes this um, statement concerning the law and the gospel. Run, John, run. The law commands but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law commands but gives neither feet nor hands. What he gets by that is this. The law can only command and condemn. Command and condemn. It cannot save. That's where the sacrifice comes in. And we've mentioned the notion of substitution. But really specifically what the, the sacrificial system stands for is substitution, but in particular, a surety. Do you know what a surety is? When you have to get a co-signer on a loan, that, that co-signer is your surety. Many years ago when I was a young guy, I wanted to get a car. It was a VW Golf. And I was out of college. And the dealer said, I'll sell it to you, but your dad has to be your co-signer. <laughs> My father said, I'm not co-signing because I don't think you're going to pay the loan. So the surety will take the debt He'll he'll carry out the obligations of the law and, if needs be, he will pay the penalties for the breach of the law. 
That's what the sacrifice teaches. What does the law command? Perfect obedience. Our Christ takes our place. What does the law demand for all of these various sins which we have committed? Death. He takes what we can't pay. Substitutionary atonement. Suretyship. Hebrews 7, uh, 22. If you read the uh, King James, I don't know about the New King James, but it says this. So much more after Jesus has become the guarantee or the surety of a better uh, covenant. Now, regarding some of the particulars, I, I, I won't go into all of them. You have various animal sacrifices, various plant products. You have, uh, you have uh, grain and flour, and then you have wine and oil um, being offered. The, um, the, 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 the portion of the sacrificial system that we have in chapter 15 is, is spelled out, as I've said, in Leviticus um, 1 through 7. And, it, and depending on how you count the various sacrifices, I'll give them a five-fold delineation. Really what this is talking about, here are the various kinds of sacrifices that God institutes. All of them are going to be realized in Christ. You have a burnt offering. You have grain offerings. And and within grain, uh, after grain offering, you have peace offerings. And the peace offerings are of a threefold kind. You you have thank offerings, wave offerings. That's the business of, of waving the food you eat the first fruits. This is thanks to God for the provision of, of keeping, sustaining your life. Then you have vow or votive offerings. Then you have purification offerings. We think of the Levitical, the, the um, lepers and so on. And then you have guilt offerings, five type offerings. And then with the animals that we have mentioned, we have, what do we have lunch mentioned? We have lamb, we have rams, we have bulls. And then in our passage, we have various usages of goats. Now, I am not an agricultural person. And sometimes we use words, and I know this is going to sound silly, and if you are, you're going to think, boy, what kind of like, city slicker are you? So I'm, I thought, well, is a ram a goat? Is a ram, what is, what is a ram? I know a you is this, but I'm, for us non-agricultural people, and these are some terms that the Bible will use, um, a ram is a male sheep, a female sheep is a you, and an immature young sheep is a lamb. Most of us know that. So when we're seeing all of these various terms being used, God is dictating not just the animal, but the age of the animal being used. So he's very fastidious. And just generally what we're being taught, it's his exclusive way of extending uh, salvation, but it is somehow the perfectly delineated way of extending salvation. And the idea is it's it's all being planned to find its climax in uh, Christ Jesus. And with all of these various sacrifices, you have everything from the remission of our debt to the continuation of our friendship, the, provi- the continued um, provision for uh, perpetual cleansing from our sins. It's just benefit upon benefit in Christ. Another thing that we th- see within the passage is Gentile inclusion. This is another thing that was a, is a distinctive a little bit in dispensationalism. Dispensationalism teaches that God has two peoples. He has the Jewish people and then he has the church. I used to be a dispensationalist. I don't think that's true. And so what we're looking at here is what I would call Gentile inclusion. He says to the Jews, there's one sacrificial system for the remission of sins for Jews and there's one sacrificial system for the remission of sins for Gentiles. This is a Genesis chapter 28. In Abraham's seed, all of the families of the earth 
will be blessed. So God is promising the only way that sins are forgiven for Jews, sacrificial system, Christ. The only way that Gentiles can ever be forgiven, sacrificial system, Christ. There's one way. There is a really weird form of a, a theology that kicks around sometimes in the broader church that they will say the gospel for the Jews and the gospel for the Gentiles. The guy's name that popularized this will come to my mind is complete heresy, meaning that God saves the Jews one way and he saves the Gentiles another way. <laughs> no way. One sacrifice is Christ. And that's being taught to us. And then, um, then you have the business of... Um, um, the sins that are committed uh, unintentionally. And the only thing I want to say about that is when we commit a sin unintentionally, it's still a sin. If you walk out of uh, the store and, you know, now you can't ever find like a checkout person. <laughs> There's no checkout people anywhere. You like, you have to check, you, you stock the shelves yourself, you drive them across the country in a truck yourself and then you sell them to yourself and then you check out yourself. But when you walk out of the store, how many people are walking out the store and they haven't, is, does that thing belong to you? And if you discover later, ah, it's in my cart, that's a sin. You, you have to take that back. That doesn't belong to you. An unintentional sin, even though it was unintentional, still needs to be atoned for. And I would just ask this. When we repent of our sins, initially when we come to Christ, when we beat our breasts and say, Thou, Son of David, have mercy, we're forgiven of all of our sins, judicially. And um, we, we repent of usually the sins that are convicting us at the moment. The sins that we repent of consciously, uh, what, what quantity are those sins in comparisons with all the ones that we've committed? Most of the sins we've committed never even make the radar screen. We, we, we do not even remember all of the sins. We've, is that not right? We don't remember a quarter of our sins. They're sins. And they've been forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a provision for that. And the, and the thing I want to say on the sins that are not forgiven, the ones committed, some of your texts will say with a high hand, this is kind of perplexing because you, you, ask away, you ask yourself a question, well, is God saying there's a class of sin that if you, you commit the sin with knowledge, then you won't be forgiven? No, it can't be that. The, the Bible doesn't contradict the Bible. And clear related passages help us understand related unclear passages. So there's only one sin that God won't forgive, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And when God says sins committed against me defiantly, it can't merely mean proud, because God does forgive proud sinners. He's forgiven me. He's forgiven the Apostle Paul was proud. So it can't mean merely sinning with knowledge or merely sinning with pride. The notion is defiant. And I think then the explanation is more understandable. This is a person that says to God, I don't care what you say. This is not even sin. I'm not counting this as sin. I'm counting this as what I want to do. I don't want forgiveness because I'm going to do it. Well, let me ask you something, beloved. If someone looks at Christ in the face and says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you are. I, I will have my sin. It's not sin. It's my right. I will have it. Is that forgiven? No. No. This is the Hebrews chapter 10. This is the Hebrews chapter 12. This is trampling on the blood of Jesus. This is what's happening now in our broader culture. 
In our broader culture, people used to say homosexuality was a sin. They used to say drunkenness was a sin. They used to say fornication was a sin. They used to say a lot of things. And now when you call people to repent of those things, they look you in the face and say, what are you talking about? This isn't even a sin. That's this. They're not asking for forgiveness. They don't want to let it up. They don't want to let it go. They're not looking to the sacrifice. They say to God, I don't need forgiveness because I'm going to keep it. Then you'll pay for it. That's the idea. And I think with the Sabbath breaking, I think that God gives an example of an in-your-face God, high-handed sin. I don't think this is the denunciation about every kind of Sabbath breaking. It's one example of what's just gone before a in-your-face God. I don't care what you say about sin. It's not sin. I will do it. And God says, then you will pay for it. And then the, the way that the passage concludes is with these tassels business, even though it's a little strange to us as New Testament Christians, the whole notion is it's a mnemonic device to remember that this whole sacrificial system, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, is designed to make us positionally something and practically something. And what is that something? Look at the last verse of the, look at verse 41. 40 and 41. Holy to God. That's what the sacrifice is for. That's what the forgiveness of sins, that's what the cleansing power of the Spirit's all about. That's what the mnemonic device is all about. That the people of God will walk around because of the sacrifices. I'm holy to the Lord. My mind is holy. My hands are holy. My eyes are holy. My wife is holy. My son is holy. My life is holy. Everything is holy. Holy to God. That's what this is designed to do. And the stunning thing is, when we come to chapter 16, the people are going to go from that straight back to rebellion. And you would think, after all of that grace and after all of that mercy, what should God do to these people? To the people in Christ, he extends mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy. And John Newton wrote a hymn about it, Amazing Grace. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.